Okay. So what we're doing today is we're having a look at culture change from a, a social psychology perspective or lens. And I'll explain what all that means in a second. So we're talking about culture change largely in organizations. So that's the kind of remit of what we're looking here. But these, so what I'm about to show you comes from a new systematic review that's just been published about two weeks ago. And what they did was they've gone through all of the research and because it's systematic review, they're looking at the the peer-reviewed research. And they've come up with a set of principles from social psychological principles, which I'll explain, for culture change, which are actually pretty useful. So some of the terms that you're going to be hearing and we're going to be talking about, particularly in terms of culture change, are active and passive culture change, purposeful and natural culture change, episodic and incremental culture change. And these, so everything on the left there, active, purposeful and episodic, tend usually to get used within the research around change and culture change to infer that there's some kind of process has been set off by an organization, usually people pretty high up in the organization. So leaders, the leadership have decided that something needs to change within the organization. And the other side, passive, natural and incremental, tend to get used to describe the natural, normal kind of change that goes on in any organization and, and particularly within any culture. And then the other phrase that you'll probably hear, and we've done a couple of research briefings around this, is this whole idea about press and balance. And basically the idea behind their press is that these activities going on that are purposeful and balance are the times when there isn't a large amount of change going on that the organization's set off in some way. So the organization's in some form of stasis and balance. So we get this idea of press and balance coming out in, in the research. And as I say, you'll see that phrase coming up in one or two of the research briefings around, particularly around change and change events, not just culture change, but all sorts of change as well. So we're talking about social psychology. What does that mean? What is it social psychologists look at? They tend to look at these kinds of things, things like social influence within populations and groups. Social cognition. So how groups and cultures think, how thinking is done within organizations. Group dynamics, which kind of speaks for itself how groups of people interact with each other and how the group themselves develops and changes over time. Self and identity. So that's, there's a lot in social psychology around this idea about how individuals develop a sense of identity and that the, the the core theory is that we tend to only do that in comparison to other people. We, if you try to get somebody to describe their own sense of identity, what they'll be doing is using some form of cognition, some comparative cognition of other people. Attitudes, usually social attitudes, and things like persuasion and influence within groups, within organisations, and how that happens, how people interact with each other and influence each other. Things like prejudice and social biases, how biases within groups start to develop, 
and prejudices within groups and without groups and those kinds of things. And obviously relationships, that's the core of social psychology. So what we're actually talking about here is a, a psychological concepts being applied to understand social or collective phenomena, which makes this a particularly useful discipline and lens for looking at things like culture and change within human systems. So before we go, start going, I'll, I'll just share this because this is going to crop up quite a few times during this session. And it's a thing called the culture cycle. It came out of some research that was done in the, the 90s. And there's been quite a f lot of studies done. And the culture cycle looks like this. Basically, what it's saying is there are different levels of analysis and different levels of things going on within any culture. Firstly, there's the individual stuff, the psychological stuff that's going on with the individuals themselves. And that's the kind of the base thing that's happening. So we've got a, a psychological level occurring within any kind of culture or within any group. Then we've got interactional forces. So this is how the individuals interact and have relationships with each other and what those relationships are like, what the dynamics are like, who people tend to connect with and who they don't like, and all of those kinds of things, the typical interactional things. Then there are institutional issues, and what that means are the kind of laws, the politics and policies and practices that go on within an organisation. And some of them will be formal, set down in policy, and some of them will be will fall out of things like the organizational structure, hierarchy, power dynamics, and things like that between managers and subordinates and those kinds of things. And some of them will be more emergent in the terms of a culture. You get this idea that you go into one department and it feels very different from another department. But even then, you recognize people from the same organization, even though there's from different departments for example so we get a, a kind of emergent cultural issue going on and then finally is this idea of ideas <laughs> so and what that means are the kind of assumptions that keep the status quo going within the organizations the kind of ideas that permeate the organization about who is good what is good what is moral within the organization? What are the right kinds of decisions to make? When to make decisions? Speed of things. Quite often, people will move from, say, the banking industry. And I've seen this people moving from the banking industry into academia, for example, and by banging their heads against the brick wall, going, I, does nobody do anything with any speed in the university? And I've seen the same thing happen with councils and things. So they're the kind of things that are at the ideas level. And they also are ideas about what and who are powerful, what ideas are powerful in this organization, what's deemed to be effective and why. And usually the ideas are based on a whole series of kind of biases and assumptions as well. So this is the, the culture cycle. And basically what it's saying is that there's, there are levels. So the levels go up from the individual interactional or institutional and then overarching are these ideas that impact all of them. 
but also it's seen as a cycle in as much as you can go round these either in that kind of order if you want or you can actually start to cycle around them and analyzing a culture from these four levels if you wish and this as i say the culture cycle really came out of this work in 1998 from um, fisk et al and fisk and marcus particularly if you go into the literature are and, and kitayama are really the drivers of both the culture cycle and a lot of the work that's been done on organizational culture change and as you can see here marcus and kitayama uh, really started to describe this as a cycle that came out of this work in 1998 so this was a 2010 paper and they're still active in the you, there are still papers coming out of marcus and fisk particularly so they're deeply ingrained in this marcus and fisk and the work that i'm about to show you come from stanford so this systematic review was done at stanford so we're talking about a, an institution with some pedigree here and what they did was they did a systematic review and they came up with seven principles that kind of apply when we're talking about culture change and we're talking about intentional culture change. So the episodic stuff, we're actually trying to change the culture. And they said, looking across all of the peer-reviewed research, these are the kind, these are the seven principles that apply right across the board. So the first principle and the first idea is this that people are shaped by the culture and shape the culture. Now, it stands to reason. There's nothing new about that. But when you start to think about what that means in terms of culture change, it has quite a lot of impact. The first thing that's important about this idea is that people create meaning within the culture. So... Within an organization, the culture helps to define the meaning of things and that they also are part of changing the meaning of things as the culture develops. Now, what that means is that it's all of the people that are the agents of change. And that's an important idea in all of this from a social psychological perspective. Just trying to do culture change with the top management or just a section or a department, as you'll see in a couple of minutes, quite likely you're on a hiding to nothing and you're going to get some surprises that you weren't expecting. The second implication of this in terms of change is that the people and the situation, so the situation within the organisation, co-construct each other and what that means is that and, and this is a power really powerful for culture change is that if you want to change the culture you need to change people's thoughts and actions and their surrounding world in order to change the culture so we're talking about you've got to change the interactions the practices norms and narratives that are going on if you're going to change the culture, just telling people to act differently is not going to cut it. And that, and that's really important, this whole idea about people and 
the situations co-constructing each other. Therefore, if you want to change people's thinking and actions, you've got to change the surroundings within the organization. So things like structures, but also the way they're interacting, the kinds of jobs they're doing, how they're viewing their jobs and things like that. The third thing is the culture cycle, which we've just had a look at and we'll come back to. Really, firstly, illustrates how the dynamic interplay between the four aspects of culture, ideas, institutions, interactions and individuals, what are known as the four I's. But the, the model itself is a very useful tool for starting to understand the culture and starting to understand, as we'll see shortly, where to target your efforts within the culture in order to create the change. And we'll come back to this. So it actually, it's a, it's not just a kind of a nice model and levels and things. You can use it to facilitate intentional cultural change. Now, the next idea that comes out of this idea about people being shaped by and are the shapers of culture is the idea that whilst culture shape individuals it doesn't do that uniformly differences in power between people the resources that they've got access to their status affect the individual's ability to be able to influence or resist or go with cultural norms so the culture acts very differently on different groups of people and uh, again we'll come back to this idea that when you think about it, usually in organizations, who sets off change? And what do they tend to protect when they do that? So usually it's the senior management who are setting it off. And what they're doing whilst trying to create change, they're also trying to keep the status quo of their power and status. And they bound the change in with, with that idea. But we'll come back to that. Groups and collectives and are powerful within any culture and so you can get forms of activism within organizations forms of protest and revolutions you're not going to get like placards and people marching up and down very not very often anyway within organizations you might during strikes and things like that but there are silent revolutions silent activism where a group of people will they don't say they're working to rule, but they'll start working in a certain style because they're fed up with something. So we get this kind of hidden activism going on within organizations. And if you can see it and you can analyze it, you can do you can start to work with it rather than it becoming a form of resistance, really. And we'll talk about resistance shortly. The other thing is that no culture is neutral. They contain inherent assumptions, biases, and what are known as defaults. And we'll come back to the, the idea of cultural defaults. And they're elements that are reinforced as people participate in and uphold a culture. And quite often, we don't see those things. And they're, they're operating at a, a subcultural level. But there's, there is no neutral cult, culture. They all have an agenda. And every subculture has an agenda. And if you can work out what the agendas are, it can help you 
both predict resistance, but it can also help you facilitate change. And and just that idea that there are agendas within cultures re is really helpful. Just going back to the whole thing about the culture cycle being useful is that what that first thing about cultures shaping people and being shaped by people is that you can start to work out these bits, what's going on between the individuals and how they're reacting. How are they reacting? How's that impacting what's going on in the institution? And how's the institution changing how they're re reacting? And how's how are the policies and procedures and structures and all the rest of this stuff within the organization affecting people? And then what are the, the ideas that are permeating across the organization, many of which are never really articulated? So being able to do that really starts to help you unpack what's going on in that culture, both before the culture change, but during it as well. And we'll come back to this idea of monitoring in a little while. The next thing, the next principle is that if for intentional culture change, is that you need to identify, map, and evaluate the culture. And this is where the culture cycle really comes in. It's a really good analysis tool for working out what's going on in each of these four areas and what's going on between them. And this is seen as critical because a lot of the research is showing where culture change doesn't either take off or doesn't work is that largely because what organizations do is they say, this is the kind of culture we want, but they don't have any kind of grounding in where they are. And like, what are the levers that will get them there? They just start telling people, this is how to behave. And strangely enough, the culture is quite powerful and quite often doesn't happen. The culture cycle seen as a vital tool for mapping the culture's key components and identifying levers for change. And it applies to any culture from broad national cultures as well. There's a lot of studies using this at kind of social levels, but also in professional cultures to specific organizational cultures as well. There's lots of papers using this. It's become a big thing in social psychology, particularly around the whole idea of, of culture change. So using the culture cycle, understanding what's going on inside the culture becomes critical. And again, mapping it out, evaluating it, trying to work out what's going on through this, through the culture cycle really helps. And that's for all sorts of things. There are studies mapping out gender biases within the workplace, rather than just saying, look, there aren't enough women at, at senior levels. What a couple of the, the studies have done is try to understanding what's going on inside the organization what are the drivers of the, the the gender biases because it's a culture change proposition it's not just a proposition of bringing more women in it's a completely different kettle of fish and quite often and this is one of the criticisms of organizational culture changes it's seen too simplistically and that's why it quite often doesn't work and quite often a lot of the things that organizations are doing are culture change propositions, but they're not seen like that. They're just seen as some form of change. We'll just do this without really working out how the culture is going to stop you doing it because cultures like the status quo. That's what they're about largely. And then 
The other thing that the culture cycle can help you do is work out how to pinpoint first look cultural defaults such as biases and things like that within the culture so the things that people just default to and the culture just defaults to without thinking about it and that when you start to analyze each of these levels you can identify where the changes are needed and though where at each of these where you start to identify where the changes are needed they become the levers of change so you can actually say, okay, this is where we need to start focusing on. These are the ideas that are holding us back. These are the ideas and values that people share that will help us move forward. So again, they're, they're really pushing this idea of, of kind of the cultural, the, the, the culture cycle and using it. And then the whole idea of these working out what the cultural defaults are. If you can list them, you know where they're occurring, why they're occurring it'll help you get over them because it's those defaults quite often that prevent change from happening anyway, whether it's cultural change or not. The next principle that they've realized from this, from the research is that firstly, which we all know, change can be initiated top down or bottom up, right? That's fine. What's interesting is why it gets initiated from those two areas so this the research is showing that top-down change is usually initiated by senior management because they want some kind of productivity and things but when you look at the hidden narrative of what they're doing is they're trying to create change for other people whilst preserving their own power and status quo and status and so what they're trying to say is they need to change, but we don't. And as we'll come back to this, there's a big problem with that, as you'll see. <laughs> yeah, so top down, usually initiated by leaders. But if you can understand the nature of both of them, you can use both of them. And the best or the culture changes that tend to stick are both top down and bottom up. They're not just one or the other. And then the last, not the last part, but what one of the, the big areas is aligning what's going on up there and down here in terms of values particularly. And that's why one of the reasons why top-down change where they've just brought you in and they're trying to protect their power and status creates a two-tier, at least a two-tier cultural organization, and they're not aligned. And then there are all sorts of things that start to happen as a result of that. Power dynamics within the system become really important. What are the power dynamics? And this comes from the ideas area, but also the inter interactions between people. Because if we can map out what those power dynamics are, we can use them. And we can also start to predict where the resistance is likely to come from. Because resistance, and we'll come back to this, resistance tends to come from groups who are having their power taken away or their status shaken in some way. And the other thing that you can use, if you can understand, where are the strategic coalitions here? So there'll be groups of people who either don't want the change or do want the change. 
and you can work out where the resistance is, but you can also work out how some of the groups, some of the alliances and coalitions you could actually use for really pushing the change faster. The culture cycle also can be used to detect clashes, clashes between groups and individuals across. And that's why working out what the power dynamics and the what alignments there are, power dynamics and coalitions are, will help you to detect those, the clashes. And then what tends to happen in organizations is the things that they change are these things. They tend to change the structure, the strategies, systems, policies, and procedures on the assumption that it's going to create organizational change and therefore cultural change. Now, it helps because it, that's the, the situation around the people, but it's not at all. And all change, all organizational change, and this is one of the principles that, that they've found, involves some form of culture change because you're changing the way people are thinking, interacting, the way that they're behaving. Then comes the idea of leveraging a culture's core values and that the idea that it's the core values that can facilitate culture change. That's the thing that you're trying to find. If you can find those, and these are the shared beliefs and norms across the organization, they're the things, whether they're articulated or not, they're the things that will help the change occur and is one of the largest levers. And it's these values, the shared beliefs and norms across a, a, an organization or a culture that um, unite people and foster a shared identity. And that's why they're so powerful. They can be used to create culture change. They can be used to create a, a vision that aligns with those values. If you're challenging the shared beliefs and norms, you're in for a fight. It can be done, but at least you recognize that's what you're doing. You're challenging something that's really right at the center of all of this. This is going to be a longer term prospect. And there's going to be a lot more resistance. Um, tackling cultural bias is inherent in the existing culture requires always requires questioning the status quo and a whole set of deeply rooted assumptions and these biases are often perceived within the culture as kind of natural or inherent and unquestionable so if you come along and start questioning them you can imagine what's going on that's going to happen but you need to out them anyway and that's one of the things that they've found is that you're not going to change very much without really questioning what what cultural biases there are and facing people within the organization and the other thing that they do these things perpetuate things like inequality and privilege of certain groups over the others so you're in for a fight but it's where the nub of the change is going to be. These these two things together are the biggest levers of change. So it's about both values and biases and not just relying on one. And yeah. Understanding cultural defaults. Now, cultural defaults are the things that just seem normal and natural and 
they also appear to be neutral. They don't seem to have any kind of agenda or anything, but actually they tend to create advantage for dominant groups and they contribute to biases and disparities within the culture. And that's why people protect them. But understanding the defaults is key to addressing the cultural biases effective anyway. So if you can out what the cultural defaults are, you'll you'll find in there, you'll find how the dominant groups are staying dominant. And being able to challenge that and show people within the organization what's going on, what these cultural defaults are that nobody's questioning can um, accelerate the change. Affirming shared values is a very potent way for motivating and persuading people for change. For example, framing policies in terms of core values, things like freedom can help increase support and reduce resistance. So if you can work out what individuals' core values are, like freedom, for example, you can actually use those. And then there's this whole idea about cultural drift. The idea of cultural drift is that cultures drift in two directions. So quite often what happens is after a and some form of episodic change, there'll be a drift back to how things were. And that's why the three-month, six-month culture change thing isn't going to, it's not like that. You need to keep monitoring it because there will be elements who've lost power and status who will be trying to drag things back. So there's backwards cultural drift, but there's also forward cultural drift that's moving into a new place. And again, you need to just monitor that to see whether it's moving into the place that you want it or new disparities and, and new aligned, new ways of taking power are starting to occur across the organization that aren't useful. And that, that becomes really important. And it's really about working out what the entrenched biases and defaults are within the organization and what the, dominant, uh, the, the dominant cultural defaults are because they're the things that are really going to hold it back. And if we can find out what they are, this is where we start to target our efforts for culture change. And then there's this idea about broader impact and consequences. So as we start to change things, there are going to be unintended consequences that will start to occur. And it's just keeping, a, again, monitoring, working out what's going on, what else is being impacted. And we'll come back to the whole thing about broader impact because no culture is isolated. They're connected to other cultures. So if you change one culture, other cultures are going to start changing. And then working out where the power and status dynamics are, that, that again, that tells you an awful lot about where you're going to get resistance and where you're going to get alliances with what the change that you're trying to do. Resistance typically involves power struggles and identity threats. That's large from a social psychological point of view. That's largely where the resistance comes from. You'll find out why people are demanding culture change through these two things. 
identity and power. What the, the whole idea of intentional change really brings to the forefront issues of power and status anyway, and and often challenging the status quo. And that's where the resistance is going to come from. And it can be threatening to those who are benefiting from the current system and aren't going to benefit in the new system. And resistance is seen as a response to perceived threats to status and identity from a, a social psychological point of view. And that quite a lot of logical arguments when you start to look under them are these being hidden. They're not actually saying, I'm about to lose power and status. They'll find other logics in order to support what they're, what's going on for them. And as a result of this, any change is going to end up with some form of power struggle within the organization because you're shifting power and status around. So people who had knowledge that was worth a lot may not have that. It may not be worth as much in the new organization. So we start to see power struggles occurring during the change process and Successful culture change requires understanding and navigating shifting power dynamics. So understanding where people are right now and what's likely to happen as a result of the change becomes a very powerful idea in this whole thing. There are individual and cultural perceptions of the change, and that's worth mapping out. And then the other thing, the other big idea that comes in here is that all change is uncertain and uncomfortable. And if that's accepted across the organization, you're going to get a, an easier ride than if it's never talked about. So there's quite a lot of research around the acceptance of uncertainty and the acceptance of discomfort during change. If it's not talked about, it's those things that create quite a lot of the resistance. This is principle six. Cultures aren't isolated. They interact with each other. And changes within one can lead to a backlash, resistance and clashes with and within other cultures. And that's at a departmental level, but also an organizational level. There isn't just one culture, there's many cultures, and those cultures may be connected to an, another area of the business or another part of the industry. So cultures aren't isolated. You're going to get unforeseen outcomes and backlashes from areas that you didn't think about. And that's why a monitoring the connecting cultures becomes quite important in all of this as well. And that... As a result of all of that, because of these unforeseen outcomes and backlashes, what we quite often tend to see is that cultures try to revert to their previous states. If the conditions for change are too challenging or the biases are too deeply rooted or the efforts are misaligned across different levels of the culture. And there's been quite a lot of research looking at tech companies who revert 
to previous norms despite calls for change, largely because of these issues here. The other thing is change is most likely to exacerbate any conflicts that are already in the system. So if there are cultural conflicts or conflicts between departments or managers and, and employees or anything like that, change is quite likely to exacerbate those cultures, those conflicts. Again, the culture cycle uh, can be used to help to identify the sources of conflict and tension points and offer avenues for change, if you were. Strategies like highlighting multiple perspectives or moral reframing can reduce polarization, particularly on social issues, because what you'll find is that both the resistance and some of these interactional forces start to create polarization in people's thinking, and you need to loosen that off. And again, you're going to get individual and cultural perceptions of the change. And the big idea here is that cultural change actually is continuous iterative process. It's not like a six month, three months. You may kick it off with that, but you've got to keep going. You've got to keep monitoring. You've got to watch for cultural drift as well. And then lastly, the seventh principle is this whole idea about timing and readiness. So timing in terms of speed of the change, monitoring the speed of the change. Is it going at the right speed? Is it too fast? Is it too slow? Are people getting bored? Do we need to kind of move things up a bit? What's the history of change within the organization? And we've done a couple of research briefings about this. So there was one in particular, I remember, that found that if individuals or the organization has been through a painful change before, there'll be a lot more resistance than people who've been through successful changes and have a positive kind of attitude towards change but there's also historical events that are outside the organization that make a difference as well we're looking for kind of unintended consequences you're going to get them and it's monitoring and looking for those now readiness for change so there's a lot of research around readiness for change but in essence it just means two things it means an openness to the change and a positive attitude towards the change and if you can create those two things, regardless of the history, you're going to have an easier ride. So it's about people understanding why. And it's this shared understanding about why and what the values are that we want. So everybody in the organization is part of the co-construction process, which goes back to principle one. How we frame it makes a huge difference in thinking about how we frame the change. And also being cautious monitoring, seeing what's occurring, what consequences are happening, and shifting things. A lot of leaders think this is fire and forget. We've got the program, let's do it. And it's the other thing about this is it's not linear. Change is not linear. You're going to have to go back to bits. You're going to have to move off in directions you didn't think you were going to move off in that you hadn't planned for. Whilst it looks linear on a set of PowerPoints, the reality is it's not going to be. And leaders particularly understanding this and understanding, starting to see where the tensions are becomes quite important. And there's a couple of papers showing that leaders in particular tend to simplify the whole process. But they need to get with the program as such. Now, so they're the seven principles. I'll 
I'll go through them quickly if, just so that we can catch up. This whole idea of people shaped by and shapers of the culture that you need to identify, map, and evaluate, that it's both top-down and bottom-up change, just doing one isn't enough, that finding the core values is a real big lever in change. It's massive. Resistance is going to happen. Usually it's because of power struggles and identity threats, but also because of the uncertainty and discomfort. And preparing people for that becomes quite important. The idea that, you know, cultures aren't isolated and it's good, they're going to affect other cultures and other cultures are going to affect the culture that you're trying to change as you're trying to change it. And that that's an important point as well. And then the timing, is the organisation ready? Are they open and receptive and positive about this? But also, how are we framing it? Have we got shared understanding? Do people understand that we're, we're going to go back and forward and all over the place with all of this? But, and this is one of the things, this is just a social psychological lens on chain, on, on culture change. There are others like these. There's an organisational development perspective that's quite different. There's a sociological perspective that's connected but not the same. A lot of organisations call in anthropologists these days, so we get an anthropological perspective on change, ethical and philosophical perspectives, environmental, technological, political science, looking at power structures and things, which was kind of part of this. Pure psychology, just looking from an individual's point of view, historical perspectives, economic perspectives. These particularly tend to be leadership perspectives. And then things like feminist perspectives. And the point of all of this, and the point I'm making with this slide here is that it really is complex. This isn't, and just because, and the other point that I would make is quite often leaders don't get this and quite a lot of consultants don't get this, is that there is no theory-free way of looking at change. We all are operating from some theory or another. And whether it fits neatly into one of these doesn't matter. And if, because we are working from a theory, it also means that we're working from a set of assumptions. And do we understand the assumptions that we're working from and that the leaders are working from? Because that's where the holes occur. And that's where things start not working. And just to finish off, that's the culture cycle. There's a research briefing with that's due to come out this weekend, which I'll send across to everybody. So that's it. Any questions, comments, or thoughts? It's very good, very interesting. I didn't find it hugely different to a sort of systems perspective, complexity systems. Mm -hmm. So complex adaptive systems that we've talked about before. Certainly compatible. Yeah, definitely. It's compatible with that. Yeah. Looking from a slightly different angle um, mm. and, and a more humanistic, psychological side mm. to it, which <clears throat> it would be. But yeah, yeah. Nice observation. Thanks, Ross. Eddie. Um, yes, there's a, a work by a guy called Damon Centola, How Behaviour Changes, that postulates that when you get to about 25% of people in any group adopting a particular behaviour, that is the tipping point for the whole group eventually to adopt mm. behaviour. Is there any 
critique of that or any evidence of that in research that has been not in the social psychological thing i have seen some studies about tipping points and it depends on whether it's a, a novel behavior or not so that 25 percent, that kind of quarter if there's a quarter of the population taking on a new set of behaviors then it tends to catch on but that it's the novelty part of that that and I'm going back in my memory, so it may not be the quarter, but it's definitely to do with novel novelty of behaviour, that it's a new behaviour. If it's if it's trying to reinsert an older behaviour and there's a new behaviour coming in, that's harder. People like right. novelty. And the and the new behaviour would be new to that culture. Yes. Yeah, not yeah. Right, okay. Right. Thanks, Eddie. Any other comments, thoughts? Yeah, question, David. What are the um, drivers for change being initiated from the bottom? You said leaders typically want to maintain their behavior, but change below. But uh, what would push from um, the bottom? Yeah, usually because they're unhappy, they're disadvantaged by something, or they're finding it it's uncomfortable working there. So you get they tend to be negative drivers. And they want a change out of where they are and they don't like the way things are. And usually what you'll find is that if you've got that kind of pressure for change within an organisation, turnovers started to increase. <clears throat> People are leaving. And what would tend to, are there any drivers or indications that would tend to make that successful when it's coming from the bottom? A time when regardless of the resistance, another resistance, but unhappiness, Nothing really changes, or are there things that would help with there being a positive change? Yeah, it depends on whether then the management and senior management actually go, okay, this is a problem, we need to fix it. And then how they fix it. So some will go into a more authoritarian stance. You just look at Elon Musk, for example, and what he did with Twitter and X, as it was. And he just said, look, if you don't want to be here, leave. And there's a whole load of people left. And unfortunately for him, as it turned out, quite a lot of the people that he needed left and he had to buy a whole load back and do new contracts with them because they weren't happy. Yeah. And so, yeah. For whoever asked the question about the, the bottom up, a great book that's a long, it's, 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 it's got some dust on it on my shelf is, um, written by a friend, Michael Beer, from the Harvard Business School. Um, actually, Mike, and then Russ Eisenstadt, and I think Bert Spector. And the title is The Corp the, the Critical Path to Corporate Renewal. So it didn't ever become a bestseller, but it was brilliant because they looked at all a number of different companies that kind of pursued um, corporate culture change renewal. And what, I guess you don't have to read the book, because what they really found was it happened at the fringe. It was never, ever, it was never something big and planned from the top that was like quality is job one kind of stuff. Is it the real change spark was sparked at the fringe and then spread um, because somebody had found an innovative way to do something. And then it was, it continually got adopted. Those were the ones who were the most sustainable. I thought it was, anyway, that's a shortcut to the, that's the cliff notes of the book, but 
too many times we still stick with plan change, right? Like we're going to be this and we, what we really need to do is look to the fringe or to the people who are doing innovative stuff that can be replicated elsewhere and <clears throat> highlight that, shine a light on it. And then that's people adopt that. They want to be successful too. I've been in companies where we just started telling stories about the people who are selling the most stuff. People found a way to learn from those guys and then things started happening. And then we didn't have to go tell them everybody's going to do this. They found it on their own. That's just yeah. another perspective. Cause I think sometimes I'm just not a big fan of large scale, high top down plan change. Cause they bomb mm. a lot of times. Yeah. 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 Bear in mind that, this session is about culture change and, and just one perspective in terms of innovation and change. Definitely that tends to happen at the periphery, which is the whole kind of organizational ambidexterity thing. And yeah. And it feeds back to what Eddie's saying about the kind of tipping point across a network. Yeah, I think that's Richard Boyatzis has published on that. A in his complexity yeah. approach to change, he gets into positive emotion, Lorenz attractors, positive and negative emotion, and tipping points. Yeah. Um, Could you put that in the in the chat, that title? Which one? The one you just mentioned, Richard Boyatz. Oh, yeah. Boyatz is an old professor of mine. I'll find it. Okay, thanks. Right. Mark. Oh, you're on. You're not coming through. You're not on mute, but no, lips are moving, but no sound. How's that now? Hey. Perfect. Yes. I've been doing quite a bit of reading around microcultures, and I'm curious whether the research has looked at the benefit of kind of spending energy on trying to change culture at a macro level and all the complexity that goes with that when compared to possibly looking at microcultures. And what I liked in what you presented is the thing that actually hangs all that together are the values. Mm. Yeah. So there is actually, and actually it goes back to the thing that Bill was talking about in terms of occurring at the periphery of things mm -hmm. that there's been one or two studies saying that actually the best place to start are the microcultures and then it starts to spread because you've got to spread it somehow and it is mm. a spreading. And when you think about it in terms of complex systems, it's across a network. Um, and as Bill was saying, a lot of these large scale planned things bomb for a whole variety of reasons. You just look at what I've just presented. The complexity of that kind mm. of change is enormous. And which is one of the reasons why I present it like this is quite a lot of leaders and managers simplify things to a ridiculous amount. They just think we can do these things, a couple of PowerPoint presentations, tell everybody how to think, and the culture is going to change. Wow. We did the town halls. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I, I, I certainly think this idea of things catching and moving across uh, a network is much more powerful personally. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Good point. The Thanks, cycle, David, the, uh, on the bottom left, the ideas 
Yeah. Uh, I think the challenge with that is that the ideas are in people's heads. They're implicit. They're beliefs that in many cases hold people rather than beliefs that people hold. In Gestalt, they talk about the paradoxical theory of change, that we have a deep understanding of the status quo and what's holding it here, then it's very difficult. But, but making that implicit stuff explicit, unearthing that, that can be the toughest challenge sometimes. Yeah, and it's easier to do in smaller groups than it is across an entire organisation because you've got all these microcultures. That's not an easy proposition. And and a lot of organisations and consultancies launch into these things without any real understanding of the complete. You look at it, it's daunting. You're not going to change a culture like in a three-month, like a, a that kind of culture anyway, just and with the programme. Nobody knows more how to change a culture than the people that are in it. Yeah. Coming in from the outside to try and change it is a bit of a folly. That's yeah, and that's the point that first slide is mate makes is that the people are shaping the culture and the culture is shaping the people. It's the people who are going to do this, nobody else. And I was involved in a large scale culture change thing when I was a police officer, and they recognized the only people who were going to change this were the police officers. And one of the reasons for that was the culture was so strong anyway. They don't trust anybody who's not a police officer. Because you don't know what it's like, and it, but it's the same in anywhere. But you go into any organisation, the first thing is you don't know, you don't understand. <laughs> You're not one of us. Yeah. Cool. Anything else? Any other comments, questions? To, to me, it seemed to pull, I think someone said it already pulls together a lot of strands of what's already known around either you know, the systems thinking element, mm -hmm. even some of David Rock works around SCARF. So it, I guess that's what you get from a study of studies. But I, I like the way that the, the principles come together. I think being able to engage some leaders around those principles and you need to be aware of this is powerful. So thank you for that. Yeah, exactly. And and it puts them, it takes them out of this kind of here's some PowerPoint slides that should change the culture. <laughs> Hang on a minute, there's a bit more to it than this. Yeah, yeah, definitely. If you can get them to slow down. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Mark. Brilliant. Anything else? One minute left. Mm -hmm. Many thanks. Great. Yeah, I hope it's been useful. Raises some thinking. And see you. We'll have the thing thanks, on David. Tuesday, and then we'll do a session at the end of December. Take care, guys. Yeah. Okay, thank, you, thank you, David. Thank you. Cheerio.